Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Recorded live. Today's Mike again. Do some more reading out of uh, a guide. Phantom Dark Age. Mm-hmm. And my air pump, dude, my fish tank is making some noise. Oh, let's see what we can do here. All right. Thanks to my friend Eric for helping me with putting the AC unit in. So we talked. Now we are at uh, the Byzantium in the 7th and 10th century. When we look at uh, the world of Byzantium, and how its 7th and 10th century histories can be knitted together following the removal of the phantom time, our attention is immediately drawn to the life and career of Hercules. It was, as we saw, in the latter reign of the Eastern Empires first came into armed conflict with the Arabs. A disastrous encounter which resulted in the loss of almost all the empire's Asiatic and North African territories, Illig has suggested that the reign of Hercules was much more shorter than is generally allowed, and that after the ignominious ignominious, uh, loss of Jerusalem and the Holy Land, he was probably killed in the action around 620. The victorious armies of Khosrows II, along with numerous Arab allies, then prolonged their uh, march uh, of conquest in Libya and westward to Carthage. The Byzantine historians, of course, tell a different story. They hold that after suffering a series of military catastrophes, the culminating culminating in the loss of almost all the empire's Asiatic possessions and the appearance of a Persian army near the walls of Constantinople, Hercules Hercules turned the tide in a most spectacular way. He is said to have led an army of picked men, just 5,000 strong, into the heart of the Persian Empire, going as far as Isfana, and inflicting 
at the same time as a series of crushing defeats on the Sassanides Sassanides, and extracted from them a humiliating armistice. Armistice. The the Persians, we are told, were compelled to evacuate all the territories they had conquered in North Africa and Syria, and furthermore to return to Byzantines the sacred relics, including the Holy Cross. They had earlier looted from Jerusalem. The Persian sources, however, as we have seen, have no record of these events, and uh, on the contrary, speak of Chosroes II as, quote, the undefeatable, end quote. The Byzantine records tell how, in his latter years, Heraclius suffered a further series of military catastrophes, this time at the hands of the Arabs, losing to these invaders all the territories he had previously lost and re- and reconquered from the Persians. As we saw in chapter 4, none of this narrative makes much sense or corresponds with the discoveries of archaeology, nor does it make sense from the historical or military perspective. The astonishing counter-offensive, which Heraclius Heraclius is said to have launched against the Persians and which saw him march into the heart of Iran with a mere 5,000 men is quite simply beyond belief. And even the mighty Alexander of uh, Macedon needed an army of 30,000 to conquer Persia. Heraclius was by no means a military genius in Alexander's mold. And the strangeness of Heraclius' story has long struck historians in the words of Gibbon of the characters conspicuous in history. That of Heraclius is one of the most extraordinary and inconsistent. In the first place, the last years of a long reign, the emperor appears to be the slave of sloth of pleasure and of superstition. The careless and impotent spectator, the spectator of public calamities. But the languid mist, the languid mists of the morning and evening in, are separated by the brightness of the uh, meridian sun. The Arcadius of the palace arose the Caesar of the camp. The honor of Rome and Heraclius was gloriously retrieved by the exploits and trophies of six adventurous campaigns. Chapter 46. Gibbon goes on to lament that It was the duty of the Byzantine historians to explain these extraordinary inconsistencies and turnarounds, a duty they failed to fulfill. The evidence, as we have seen, is that these latter expeditions of Heraclius are pure fiction, 
Yet, if that be the case, what might we ask was the purpose of such an invention? The Arabs usurped the Sassanid throne and rewrote history to disguise the fact that justify and justify their actions. But what was the motive of the Byzantines? The answer, I believe, is fairly straightforward. In the intensely religious age, uh, uh, the loss of the sacred relics at Jerusalem in 614 was a moral catastrophe. And at some stage, probably uh, a century or more later, a new sect of sacred sacred relics used to bolster the faith of the populace in their desperate struggle with the Arabs appeared in Constantinople. These were, without question, fakes, yet it was important for the people to believe that they were genuine. Hence, it was important to create a narrative of how they came to be back in the possession of the empire. The narrative was Heraclius victorious wars against the Persians in the middle of his reign. Concocting a history in which Heraclius turned the tide of the war against the Persians and then lost everything a second time to the Arabs meant giving him a reign much longer than he really enjoyed. Thus, 641 was fixed as the year of his death. Everything then suggests that Heraclius died shortly after the Persian conquest of Syria and Egypt, around 620, and that immediately after the empire went into uh, precipitate went into per, per, uh, precipitate decline, very few, if any, major buildings and major material finds can be attributed to the emperors who are said to have followed Heraclius. A few coins, usually of silver or bronze, can be securely tied to Constance II, who is said to have succeeded Heraclius after the extremely brief reign more than a few months, excuse me, no more than a few months, of Constantine the Third and Heraclion, a small handful of coins attributed uh, to several other emperors, usually of poor quality, often of the emperor named Leo, then occur before the appearance of the well-organized mints of Constantine the Seventh slash Protophyrogenitus in the early 10th century. A full three centuries later, since he was, or since we know, that Constantine the Seventh reigned until 959, i.e. 659, or rather 666, according to Illich. This means that all the emperors between Heraclius and him, these were said to have been 25, must be placed in a few intervening years. However, because Heraclius is said to 
have reigned until 641, and Constantine VII is credited for the for a credited with a 48-year reign, beginning in 911, i.e. Alex 614. It is clear that neither of these monarchs can have reigned anywhere near as long as they are credited, and that furthermore, almost all the emperors placed between them and the fictitious are, are fictitious. Indeed, since only two of these, Constans the second and Leo the third or the sixth, have any archaeology at all, we can conclude that they are the only two genuine historical figures between Heraclius and Constantine the seventh. Emperor Leo can only have been Leo the Isaurian or Isaurian uh, who launched the uh, iconoclasm episode. Supposedly in the middle of the 8th century, iconoclasm, it is well understood, was the extreme reaction to the existential crisis facing the empire following the terrible losses to the Arabs in the 7th century. That is really That it really occurred is beyond question. Almost all pictorial representations of Christ and, and saints predating the 7th century have disappeared from the Byzantine world. The episode of the destruction is generally placed in the 8th century, right in the middle of the Dark Age, so that here we have a prime example of a real event which has been placed chronologically in an epic that never existed. Where then does all this leave us? Well, for one thing, it means that after the ephemeral reign of Constantine III and Heraclion, Constans II sat in the throne for a half year at least. His reign cannot have been long. We know that during his time, Constantinople itself was threatened by Arabs under the Umayyad uh, Caliph Mu'awiyah, who laid siege on the city in, for four years, supposedly 674 to 678, but far more probable probably around 645, the terrible crisis facing Byzantium then led to iconoclasm under the next emperor who was named Leo. His reign too cannot be, cannot have been of great length and we may be justified in placing uh, Session of Constantine VII around uh, 650 AD. With the latter, we emerge again into 
the light to the real history. It says here, figure restruction, restructed history of the 7th century. And it has a graft here, which I will not read. Chapter 6, a strange, a strange new world, consequences. Accepting that Illich is correct has dramatic consequences for almost every area of history. Most obviously, if the years between 614 and 911, or 914, did not exist, this means that all dates post 911 must be reduced by almost three centuries. Thus, for example, the Nor Norman conquest of England did not occur in 1066, but in 766, or more precisely, 769. If chronology is to be followed exactly in the same way, the First Crusade would not have launched in 1095, but in 795 or shortly thereafter. The widespread feelings among historians, therefore, is that the Crusades represented a, the, Christ, the Christian response to Islamic conquest is therefore stunningly confirmed. Remove the 300 years of the Dark Age, and the Crusade at last makes perfect sense. No area of Europe... European history can escape the consequences of such an upheaval in the chronological order. But what strikes one most from the new perspective is the speed of historical developments as they occurred in real time, processes which we have had previously imagined took many centuries are now revealed to have occurred in a few decades. And we are struck too, by the uh, medieval world's proximity to the Roman one. Norman invasion of England did not occur 11 centuries after Caesar, but only eight, and the strikingly Roman-like looking feel of so much of the early medieval culture begins to make perfect sense. The late Roman art and architecture of the Merovingians and the Visigoths, which survived and flourished into the 7th century, now appears rightly as the immediate predecessor and ancestor of Roman-style Romanesque art and architecture of Germany, France, and Spain in the 10th and 11th century. Everywhere we see a picture of a continuity rather than a fracture. The survival of Latin as a language of learning in the church is but one facet of all pervasive Romanness that now emerges, and we can at last agree with the revisionists who, in recent decades, have spoken insistently of a vanishing paradigms, paradigm of the fallen, of fallen Rome. Truly, as they say, Rome, or at least Roman civilization, did not fall, but merely developed into medieval civilization. Thus, the great rebirth of European civilization, which occurred in the late 10th, 10th or early 11th century, and which saw the re 
consumption of construction of massive monumental architecture and the building of new towns actually occurred in the late 7th and early 8th century and formed a continuum with the rebirth and revival of Europe, which had commenced so promisingly in the 6th century. Taken out of its proper context, the 10th slash 11th century Renaissance makes no sense at all. Historians struggle to explain it, that it was accompanied by a massive increase of and population and a general expansion of agriculture is evident to all. Why this increase in expansion should have occurred in the 10th and 11th century has, however, hitherto been mysterious. In the words of Hugh Trevor Rober, the change that came over Europe was great, though, quote, exactly what that 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 was, we can hardly say, end of quote. Nevertheless, quote, one element of the chemical change of the 11th century was the undoubtedly, was undoubtedly a great, though to us, unmeasurable increase in population and one cause, or at least concomitant, concomitant, of the increase of population was a series of technical improvements which increased the productivity of the land, end of quote. He then goes on to suggest that the adoption of the moldboard plow was a development of the 10th and 11th century and that this new technology facilitated a great expansion of agriculture. The problem with this explanation, of course, is that the moldboard was known since the 4th century and had been had become common in temperate Europe by the 6th. Why then did it fail to produce an expanded population until the 11th century? But if the Renaissance of the 10th and 11th century actually occurred in the 7th and 8th, then the expansion of population in towns makes perfect sense and is part of a normal organic development that had commenced in the 6th century. And it is clear, too, what prompted this revival, the adoption of Christianity, which we mentioned in Chapter 1, had everywhere the same result, an immediate and fairly dramatic increase in population. During the 2nd and 3rd centuries, this was felt most in the eastern territories of the Roman Empire, where Christianity and Judaism was strongest. Indeed, by the 5th and 6th centuries, Christianity had so transformed the Levitine world that cities and towns were more populous and numerous than ever, and historians speak of a golden age of late classical civilization in the in the reign in the region, excuse me, the West beginning further from the core of Christianity was converted later. Yet here too the moment of conversion marks a new epoch in the of growth and expansion.
Spain, with her enormous Jewish population, was among the first of the Western provinces to become Christian. Most early converts to Christianity were from among the Jews, and Spain was likewise the earliest to show signs of revival and expansion, uniquely in the West, and for the first time since the early Caesars, by the 6th century, the kings of Spain began to erect entirely new cities. Gaul was converted somewhat later than Spain, but here too, around the first quarter of the 7th century, archaeologists noted the first signs of expanding towns and populations. Germany was too converted at the same time, and the great medieval towns of the country began to spring up everywhere. Ireland had a, had been converted a good deal earlier in the 5th century, and here too there appeared all the signs of expansion and growth, as well as adopting Roman civilization wholesale, including studying of Latin language and the imitation of Roman architecture. The Irish now began sending out colonies of various parts of, Brit of the British Isles, some of which become thoroughly uh, hibernized. Hibernicized. Hibernicized. I'm not saying it Sized. Hibernicized. Hibernicized. Hibernicized, something like that. Okay, anyways, how else uh, to explain the adoption of the, the Gaelic language uh, in, in Scotland, even though the Irish failed to conquer the country? The massive expansion of Christianity into the northern and eastern Europe, which historians have hitherto described to the late 10th and 11th century, can now be seen as part of the organic growth of Christianity, which began in Gaul and Germany during the 5th and 6th centuries. Thus, Poland, Hungary, Scandinavia, and Russia uh, most re really have must have really have been converted and added to the Latin civilization in the late 7th and early 8th century, which means that by 700-720, at least the borders of Christendom and Roman civilization stood at the Urals in the east and the Arctic Circle in the north, and Christian missionaries and monks had therefore achieved a few decades of what the least... What, legions of Rome had failed to achieve in many centuries. Such a fact will have profound implications for our understanding of Christianity and its impact upon history. And I'm about ready to sneeze. Excuse me. With expansion came the venerable title wave of new technologies and learning. Most of the new ideas, many of which were of epic-making importance, arrived from the East, usually from China and India. And again, this was the process which began in the 6th century. 
with the arrival of the stirrup and silk making then was mysteriously interrupted for three centuries only to recommence equally mysteriously in the 10th century. These new ideas created a civilization that was far more technically advanced than Rome had ever been. Nonetheless, it was a civilization that often lacked the efficiency and even rationality of Rome. The musings of an uh, Isidore of Seville, 7th century, on etymology and natural history sounds puerile, excuse me, and ignorant than compared with the writings of Pliny. And yet, this newly Christianized and Latinized Europe was far from being barbarous. Elaborate churches and castles and palaces were springing up everywhere from the Atlantic to the Urals. Monastic institutions were propagating the learning of Greek and Rome in both Greek and Latin and all over the continent. And many new technologies which entered Europe at this time came by way of newly Islamicized Near East. These must have arrived, as common sense indicates, in the 7th century, not the 10th. As history with its dark age, in quotes, has hitherto insisted, this means that the Arab blockade of the Mediterranean, which Henry Perini blamed for precipitating the, quote, dark ages, end quote, in Europe did not entirely sever all commercial and cultural contact along the trade routes of the Middle Sea. Does this then mean that the Arabs were a beneficial force in the Mediterranean and that the Perini got it wrong? This is an important question that requires careful consideration. Europe and the East. Irrespective of how we view Islam, its impact upon Western civilization, it is surely no coincidence that the confused epoch we now call the Dark Age coincided precisely with the appearance of the Muslim faith on the world stage. What emerges very clearly from Illig's redating of the early Middle Ages is the appearance of Islam marked the definitive end of late antiquity and the commencement of the Middle Age or Medieval Age. The very confusion which allowed the phantom centuries to be implemented into the calendar and the Dark Age myth to be uh, created in the first place was a dark, excuse me, was a direct result of momentous events happening in the eastern Mediterranean in the first half of the 7th century. We know that immediately prior to the Great War which Persia, with Persia, which commenced in 602, the Byzantine lands of Anatolia, Syria, and Egypt were enjoying a period of unprecedented prosperity. We have 
seeing how archaeologists describe the epic of the Golden Age in the eastern Mediterranean cities flourished as never before in great centers of learning in Alexandria, Heliopolis, Antioch, Ephesus, and elsewhere preserved and added to the knowledge of the Greeks and Romans within a few short within a very short time uh, the Persians and Arab conquest conquests these centers were mostly defunct and many of the great cities of the area were terminal in terminal decline. Perhaps within the, the fifty years of the Arab conquest huge swaths of the territory of the Middle East and North Africa, which had until then supported a thriving agriculture and prosperous, prosperous cities, was turned into a semi-inhabited wasteland. By the middle of the 8th century, the population of the Middle East and North Africa had registered a decline estimated at anything between threefold and tenfold, and the revived urban environment which uh, which archaeologists regarded as having appeared in the 10th century, just as in in Europe, are usually quite small in comparison with the Byzantine cities of the 6th century, which they replaced. How is this to be explained? The topic of Islam's impact upon Mediterranean civilization is one of the great gen that one that has generated heated debate over the past century. A debate that it has become arguably even more heated in the wake of 9-11 atrocities and the revival of an aggressive and expansionist Islam over the past decades. Suffices to note here that the best evidence suggests that the arrival in the Byzantine territories of Syria and North Africa of nomad Arabs with their herds of goats devastated the complex system of irrigation and terracing, which the Romans had maintained for centuries. Yet, that, that in itself is insufficient to explain the destruction of the entire economy of the region. Native husbandmen, uh, we might imagine, would have taken exception to Arab newcomers grazing their goats and camels in the cornfields. This would certainly have occurred at the beginning, but the provisions of Islamic law as enshrined in the Sharia Code would ensure that that such objections would soon be silenced under the provisions of Sharia law Unbelievers do not share equal rights with Muslims. In any dispute, there is a tendency uh, for the Muslim uh, appellant to claim the infidel has insulted Islam and or Muhammad. This is a capital offense in Islam, and since the testimonies of a Muslim always trumps that of an infidel, this is also the same thing the Jewish attitude towards uh, non-Jewish, so isn't that interesting? <clears throat> the latter was, as in some areas still is, invariably 
arrested and put to death. Under such circumstances, it is perfectly understandable that Christian and Jewish farmers in the Middle East and North Africa would learn not to complain if they saw Arab nomads grazing their herds in their fields. In such circumstances, large areas of previously irrigated and cultivated land might soon be reduced to wasteland, and it has to be admitted that this is precisely what we observe throughout the conquered territories of the 7th century. And it shows a map of Europe circa A.D. 600. The impact of Islam on Europe was more nuanced, but it was also dramatic. Perini has stressed that the Muslims broke the unity of the old classical civilization by blockading the Mediterranean, cut off from the higher centers of culture. In the East, Europe was left to its own devices and focus of cultural and economic activity moved north towards northern Gaul, Germany, Britain, and Scandinavia. There is no question that Caprini was largely right in this regard, notwithstanding attempts of mainstream scholars to debunk, to debunk him over the, over the decades. Critics have stressed that trade, albeit mainly in slaves, did continue in the Mediterranean after the appearance of Islam. And they have pointed to the influx into Europe of new technologies from the 10th century onwards, which, of course, Italy's 7th century. Uh, on the first of these objections, it has to be conceded that that trade on slaves can hardly be considered normal economic activity. The slaves of the Muslims desired were white-skinned Europeans, and these were obtained either by raiding towns and villages throughout South Southern Europe, or by purchasing them from Viking freebooters. And indeed, it is now widely understood that the entire Viking phenomena was called forth by Islam, by the Islamic world, demand for European slaves. The slaves sold to the caliphs by the Vikings were often from Eastern Europe, and our very word slave is derived from Slav. As this stage, most of the Slavs were still pagans, but the Vikings, as everyone knows, also preyed upon Christian Europeans in Britain, France, and Germany. Many of these, too, made their way into the harems of the caliphs and the emirs, Amar, Amars. It can now be, it can be no coincidence that it was just the first decades of the 7th century that the previous pattern of settlement in the southern Europe with scattered and undefeated lowland villas was replaced by a retreat to defend hilltop redoubts, the first medieval castles. 
Slave trade, therefore, is associated with piracy, and piracy, if it is endemic, means the the end of most, if not all, of normal trade. The fact that normal trade did cease is pro- provided beyond question by the disappearance from Europe from the middle of the 7th century of certain products which had previously been imported into the West in great quantities. Perini's method mentions several of these, such as spices, wine, silk, papyrus, etc. He might also have noted the disappearance of good quality soda for glass production, which meant the termination of burgeoning Merovingian glass industry in the 7th century. Yes, as mentioned above, Perini's critics have also pointed to the influx of Eastern technologies and ideas into the West in the 10th century, and actually in an illegal scheme of the 7th century. If this is the case, how can there have been a blockade, as Perini claimed? The answer to this is sufficient to note that a new idea and technology may be transmitted from one civilization to another by a single knowledgeable individual and doesn't need the assistance of a regular trading relationship. It is known for a fact that several of the new ideas such as Arabic numeral system, which was actually Indian, reached Europe through a mean a mere handful of Jewish refugees who arrived in France and Germany from North Africa and Spain in the late 10th century, or actually late 7th, to escape persecution. In addition, a small number of Europeans often in the disguise crossed the borders of the Islamic world in secret, or excuse me, in search of knowledge. It seems that Gerbert of Alaric, a genius of the 10th or in practice 7th century, may have been one of these. At this point, the reader might note that since the Arabs possessed knowledge and technologies of the Europeans desired, this is at least proves that they cannot have been as, um, as uh, obscurantist and anti-science as it uh, is commonly imagined. Again, however, Illig's thesis casts a whole new light on this. When Islam conquered the Middle East and North Africa, it took control of the major centers of the classical civilization of Anatolia and Mesopotamia, Syria, Egypt, and North Africa. There existed vast and wealthy cities besides which the cities of Europe looked like mere villages. Even at the height of the Roman Empire under the Caesars, Europe was an economic and cultural backwater. Aside from Rome herself, Europe had no real urban center, which the relocation to Byzantium in the 4th century of the economic stagnation of the West only increased Christianity, it is true, by encouraging a higher birth rate did provide a stimulus, which eventually led to a powerful and vibrant Europe. But the Christianization of Europe had barely begun by the 6th century. So, 
in taking control of the prosperous and advanced lands of the Middle East and North Africa, Islam gained possession of all the important centers of civilization and wealth in the 7th century. Pre-Islamic Sassanid Persia was already, by the 6th century, a conduit, a conduit for the importation of new technologies and ideas from China and India into the uh, Occident. Or Occident. The continued, <clears throat> this continued a short time after the Islamicization of Iran, but it seems to have been a very short, a very short time. The weight of Islamic theocracy was soon to put paid to most economic and scholarly innovation. We know that by the middle of the 11th, i.e. 8th century, the Islamic world had begun to lose its advantage and that from then on Europe became able to compete. This means that Italy's scheme that by the middle of the 8th century, say around 750, the Islamic world had already squandered a gigantic head start in its inheritance head start it, it had inherited from the Sassanides and conquered Byzantines just a hundred years earlier. Indeed, by the middle of the 8th century, Europe was ready to counterattack. And this, of course, brings us to the whole question of the Crusades. Everything about the latter series of wars which commenced officially in 1069, but which had really begun in Spain and Sicily in 1030s, would suggest that they represented a European response to Islamic wars of conquest. However, since these latter are supposed to have begun about 400 centuries earlier, it has been customary not to see the Crusades as a response to, to them. Instead, the Crusades are widely held to be an almost incomprehensible outburst of European aggression, a kind of early proto-colonialism against a quiescent uh, and peaceful Islamic world. Applying Illig's new chronology, the Crusades finally makes sense. The march of the conquest of the Siljuk Turks through Anatolia and the gates of Constantinople, which precipitated the First Crusade, is now seen as a, an event of eighth century of the eighth century and the and the final great wave of Islamic conquest, which had begun just a century earlier. And I'll stop there, and then, then we'll be looking at the astronomical evidence. All right. Plugging along and getting along. I'll go get my son. Graduation boy. What we're going to do for his graduation? Boom.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.